Ruth chapter 4. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to her brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of those these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabites, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, Oh, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his saddle and gave it to the other. This was the matter of, le- matter of leg- oh, this was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, "Buy it yourself," and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, "Today you are the witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Marlon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabites, Marlon's widow." as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are my witnesses. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Uh, through the offspring the Lord gives you by this woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The, woman, the women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. Well everyone loves a uh, happy ending, especially when there is a unhappy beginning. We love a rags to riches story and that's Ruth isn't it uh starts with Naomi and her family and there's a famine in the land so they went away and they lived Uh, but her husband and her two sons died she comes back empty she comes back bitter 
She's sure the Lord has stopped showing kindness. But as it turned out, Ruth ended up in the field of Boaz. She found favour in Boaz's eyes, and Boaz, it turned out, was a kinsman redeemer, a relative who was obligated to marry her. So even Naomi thought, the Lord has not stopped showing his kindness. So we saw that with that confidence in God's sovereign kindness, she takes initiative. And at the end of chapter 3, Naomi and Ruth are waiting patiently. For there's a problem. They want Boaz, and Boaz wants Ruth, but there's a man who's a closer relative, a closer kinsman redeemer. And the whole story, the whole happy ending hangs in the balance. Like a penalty shootout at the end of the quarterfinals in the World Cup, you don't know which way it's going to go, though you're fairly sure. Sure enough, the other kinsman redeemer in the first half of chapter 4 says, I cannot. Boaz says, I do. And you see how good it is, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Back in chapter 1, Naomi had said, May the Lord show kindness to you. May you find rest in the home of another husband. Boaz said, May you be richly rewarded by the Lord. Well, it's happened. She's found rest in the home of another husband. She's been richly rewarded. She's got a husband, a son, and she's fully part of God's It is a happy ending for Ruth. And not just for Ruth, but for Naomi. She's come back empty but bitter. And now look at her, verse 16. Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. Not that this son, this grandson, means an end to her grief. That'll never end. Not that this son replaces her two sons. Nothing can do that. But she's gone from empty to full, from death to new life, from bitter to joy to hopeless to hope. And you see that the Lord has not stopped showing his kindness. What's the Lord done? He's brought new life and hope out of death and hopelessness. And at that point we ought to pause And we ought to feel comfort and confidence. Can you see what the Lord can do? No matter what your disappointment in life, no matter what has gone wrong, the grief that you experienced, some of you that hasn't happened yet, some of you have experienced very seriously and you've asked yourself, has the Lord stopped showing his kindness? How could God possibly bring good out of this, you ask? Well, you see it here, don't you? The Lord's sovereign kindness, he could do it for Ruth and Naomi. He can do it for us. He's a good father and he does all things for our good. Do you believe that? The Lord brings new life and hope 
out of death and hopelessness. It's a happy ending. But surely there's more here than just a happy ending. The Lord brings a a new life and hope out of death and hopelessness, but we need to see how he does that. Through whom? It's been a big theme in the first three chapters. There's this type of person, this relative called a kinsman redeemer. It uses the word five times. But in chapter 4, it's got the word redeemer or redeem ten times in one chapter. And there are four different redeemers. This is definitely a theme in chapter 4. Someone who rescues you, someone who brings you out, someone who redeems through paying a price. So let's have a look from the beginning of the chapter. Boaz, sure enough, wastes no time. First thing in the morning, he gets down to the town gate because people pass by and he's going to need some witnesses. As it turned out, verse 1, the kinsman redeemer, the guy closer than him who can marry Ruth first, came along. And Boaz gets straight to the point. Verse 3, he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will not redeem, if you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. Boaz is the hero, isn't he? And we're on Boaz's side, but your first time that you read this, you're going, Boaz, what are you doing? I mean, what is this land thing? This is the first time that land is mentioned. We had no idea that Naomi has a block of land that she's selling at this point. And what on earth are you doing, Boaz? You seem to be enticing this guy to say yes. But Boaz, is, he's got integrity, but he's also shrewd. He might have read the art of the deal. He knows how to do this guy. And so he entices him. He puts the land on the table because he knows what he will say. I'll do it. And we're feeling nervous. This is not going well. He entices the man and then he entraps him. He's put the land on the table and now he puts the widow on the table. If you buy the land, you've got to marry the widow. That's what the law says. If someone is forced to sell their part of God's land, their inheritance, then a kinsman redeemer must buy it to keep it in the family. But also the kinsman redeemer, if that person is a widow who's selling it, must marry the widow to maintain the name of her first husband with the land. Do you see? It's a package deal. You can't take one without the other. And so he entices this man with the land. Yes, there's Naomi. He mentions her, but he's not worried about her. He doesn't have to marry her. That's a net gain, getting the land on its own. But then he entraps him. Land plus Naomi plus Ruth. You'll have to marry Ruth. And you'll have to have children with Ruth. You might think that's a good thing. She's a good lady. But the children you have won't be yours legally. They're children for the first husband, the dead husband. And they will inherit the land. The land is not yours. 
Do you see, your assets will be diluted. As he said, I might endanger my own estate. I cannot redeem it. And so he takes off his sandal, which is pretty weird and pretty smelly, and he gives the land, the right to the land, to Boaz. And how do we react? People have read the story and are on Ruth and Boaz's side. Hooray, we say. We didn't like this guy anyway. He doesn't even know Ruth. We don't want him to marry Ruth. We want Boaz plus Ruth. But should we really be cheering when this man says no? What should he say? He is the kinsman redeemer. He is the one whose responsibility is clear. Buy the land and marry the widow. He's to provide for the widow. He's to maintain the name of the dead husband with the land. Now, I find that hard to understand why that's important to maintain the land with the name of the dead husband. I mean, even if you like the area, you love the Hawkesbury, even if you have a block of land that you're farming and it's been in the family for generations, it's not the same as it was for God's people. This is God's land. This is God's promise to them. And their bit of the land is their bit of God's promise. It's their inheritance and it needs to stay in the family. And the kinsman redeemer knows this. If it was his name, if it was his land and he died, you can bet your bottom dollar he'd want the kinsman redeemer to step up and protect his estate. And yet he says, I cannot. Which when you translate it is, I will not. The cost is too great. I must protect myself. Well, the law said what to do when a man refused to marry the widow. You can look it up later on in Deuteronomy 25. If a man will not marry the widow that he's required to by the law, then in front of the elders, the widow is to come up and take off his sandal and spit at him in the face. And from then on, his family will be called the family of the unsandaled. Which I think is bad, don't you think? It's a put down, it's a shame. Fortunately for him, the widow, Ruth, is not there to take off his sandal. He gets to do it. But the author makes it clear, I reckon. This man was worried about his estate, his name and his land. But what is his name, this guy? If he'd stepped up, we would know his name 3,000 years later. Instead, this irresponsible redeemer is Mr. Unsandled. He's Mr. Unnamed. He's Mr. Nobody. Can you see what the author thinks of him? He is a shameful man. And if it was simply left to him, if there were no other kinsmen redeemers, the widows would be left on their own with no one to provide for them and the name of the family would be lost from the land. 
The Bible thinks people should take responsibility for other people, especially for their family. Do you do that? If you're a parent, do you take responsibility in every way for your children? If you're a grandparent, do you do it for your grandchildren? If you're an adult and your parents are still alive, do you take responsibility for your parents to the best of your ability? That's what God wants us to do. In our wider family, especially if they don't have children to look after them, or if you know someone, and I've seen people in our church who do this, who they know someone who has no family to care for them in their old age, and they step in and take responsibility. 1 Timothy 5 makes it really clear that if we will not care for our family, we are worse than an unbeliever. Do you take responsibility? And if none of those seem to apply to you at the moment, they will in the future. But for now, maybe it's at work or at school. Do you take responsibility or you figure someone else will look after that? Or here at church, you hear of an opportunity to serve or there's things to just simply clean up and you figure someone else will do it. Or do you take responsibility? What if our Redeemer was like Mr. Unsandled, Mr. No-Name. You know, Jesus, uh, God's son, there in heaven. Sorry, Father, but I couldn't possibly go down to earth. I cannot do it. I might get hurt. Or there in the garden before he was due to die. Father, I thought this was a good idea, but I just, I cannot do it. I don't want to take responsibility for this. Imagine. Well, Mr. Nobody shows us how good Mr. Boaz is, doesn't he? Boaz knows God's sovereign kindness. He's already cared for the widows already, and he wants to care for Ruth. Do you think his estate was in danger by marrying Ruth and the children not being his? Yes, just as much as the other man, but he steps up. He takes responsibility. He buys the land And he marries Ruth. And look at what he says about why he's doing it. Verse 9. Today you are witnesses that I've bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, her husband, Kilian and Amalon, her sons. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, Marlon's widow, as my wife. In order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today... You are my witnesses. We've noticed on the way through that Boaz knows how to talk to a woman. He praises her. His words are kind towards her. Blind Freddy can see that he's keen on her. But look at the way he talks about her here. Look at what he says about what is happening and why he's doing it. I have also, verse 10, acquired Ruth the Moabitess. There's a word not to use, guys, towards a woman. And why has he done it? In order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. That's why he's marrying her. You imagine Obed in about five years' time. He's a baby at this stage. Hey, Dad, why'd you marry Mum? What was it that made you really want to marry her? Well, son, says Boaz, 
She was married before, you know, and her husband died. And it's really important, uh, according to God's word, that uh, the name stay uh, with the family, uh, with the land. And so I married her to maintain the name of her dead first husband. That's an unusual reason to marry someone, isn't it? It's not the only reason. Boaz would also go on, I take it, to tell him the story. I'd heard about this wonderful woman, Ruth, who'd come back all the way from Moab because she loved her mother-in-law. And I thought she must be an incredible woman. She'd come to join God's people and left her own people. And she came, as it turned out, into my field, and I was delighted. When I talked with her, I thought, this is the sort of woman for me. And we fell in love. That's true. All that is true, but there is another reason to do what was right, to maintain the name of the dead first husband with his land. Do you see? Marriage is not just about a man and a woman and their love for each other. It is that, but it's far more. What is marriage? It's about family, isn't it? It's about society and society working well. It's about the purposes of God for his people. And marriage is a hot topic in our society. We think society says it's all about just one person and another person and their love for each other. And the wedding is simply an opportunity to celebrate that love. God's word says no. It's a man and a woman who commit to love each other. It's a public declaration, a wedding, so everyone will know and recognise and support them. And it's not just about them. And it's not just about love. It's for the good order of society. It's for the raising of children. And if you're a Christian, it's for serving Jesus together. It's for making and growing disciples. Strangely, despite having five children who are now all old enough to ask him the question, I don't think any of them have ever actually asked me, why did you marry mum? And if they asked me, I could tell them how we met at a dance. And the music was awful and too loud, and so we talked to each other, and we found that talking to each other was really good. And we enjoyed spending time with each other, and we had a lot in common. And we, I fell in love with this beautiful girl, and I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her. I could say all of that. But I could also say... I wanted to serve her for the rest of my life. I wanted to raise children with her. I wanted to help her to become more like Jesus. And I wanted to serve Jesus together with her. They're not romantic reasons, but they're good reasons. And if you're thinking about marriage in the future, I I say to you, They need to be your reasons too. Is this how you think about marriage? If you are married, is this how you are living out marriage? That it's not just about you two. Well, there's Mr Nobody, the irresponsible redeemer who will not redeem. There's Boaz, the responsible redeemer who steps up. The Lord brings new life and hope to Ruth and Naomi, and how does he do it? Through his Redeemer. But surely you would think there is something more to this book of the Bible than just Ruth and Naomi getting new life and 
hope. It's a wonderful book, a wonderful story. God's sovereign kindness in ordinary lives, in little people. But what on earth is it doing in the Bible if that's all it is? How does it fit with the wider Bible's story? Who is this redemption for? As you get to the end of the story, there are all these clues that something bigger is going on. Have a look again at verse 13. It's the climax of the story. Everything has been working towards this, and this is what you get. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Here is the climax of the story. And what do you get? The proposal story, the engagement ring, the wedding dress, the honeymoon, what their married life was like? No. Bare facts. It couldn't be any shorter. This can't be the climax of the story. Boaz and Ruth and Naomi don't even say anything. Instead, the women do. Do you notice that? Verse 14. Suddenly these women, the women of the town, who spoke in chapter 1 briefly, can this be Naomi, suddenly like a musical, they are wheeled back on onto the stage and, and start singing. No, thankfully not, they speak. Praise be to the Lord, they say. They're the ones who take over and they're the ones who name the boy. Verse 17. How rude is that? As if they own him. Well, they sort of do. The redemption, the new life and hope is not just for Ruth and Boaz. It's for the whole community. And you see how over the top it is. When the elders are talking about this wedding that's about to take place, they they pronounce a blessing up in verse 11. And they say, may your wife, may Ruth, be like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Remember Rachel and Leah? How many sons did they produce? Twelve. I mean, Ruth, no pressure. That's an over-the-top expectation, isn't it? And then Obed's just a baby, and the women start talking about him as a kinsman redeemer already, and he's going to be famous throughout Israel. Do you think something bigger is going on? Verse 17. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Wow. I mean, where did that come from? There's no hint in the entire story that it's got anything to do with a king, anything to do with royalty, until this point, when it's just sort of understated, put there for you. It's like you've been watching a movie about South Africa and the days of the apartheid uh, and there's these awful, horrific scenes going on and there's one family which you follow through in the story and, and this couple fall in love uh, and, they, uh, and they have a baby and that's where the movie finishes and it's a happy ending and it's simply right at the end it says they named him Nelson. And then, uh, then this little, you know, this is what happened in the rest of the history comes up. Nelson Mandela was the first black president of South Africa. And you go, oh, well that makes a sense sense of the movie. That's why they made the movie, do you see? That's what's happening here. No mention of it. And yet, here he is. 
In Judges 21, do you remember, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. It was awful. There was no one to protect, no one to provide, no one to lead them. In those days, there was no king. Do you remember? That was the last word in the book of Judges. And then you get this nice story. Nice story about two widows, a man and a baby. And it turns out the grandson of that baby is King David. In those days, there was no king in Israel. In those days, as it turned out, Ruth, Reth, Boaz, and they produced King David. Do you see, God is at work in the little events, the little people of this world, to bring about his big plan. He brings new life and hope to Israel through his Redeemer. Can it get any bigger than that? Yes. Finally, you get the credits come up in verse 18 and it's time to walk out of the movie, isn't it? Your mind switches off. You look at how it's structured there on the page and you go, boring. And in a sense it is because it just gives a whole lot of names and it ends up in the same place. We've already had Jesse and David, do you see? But as you look at it there on the page, it should look familiar. Does it look like anything else in the Bible? Yes, the start of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. This is exactly the same words. Matthew has just done a copy and paste and gone, here it is. Though he threw in the name Ruth, just to remind you. God brings hope and new life through his Redeemer to the couple, to Israel, and now to all nations. Ruth was a Moabitess, do you remember? Now it's open to everyone. New life and hope to us through our Redeemer, Jesus. Finally, what do Ruth and Naomi do to make all this happen? How do they contribute in Ruth chapter 4? Did you notice? In the negotiations, Ruth's not even there. Ruth and Naomi do nothing. New life and hope comes through the Redeemer. Does that sound familiar for us? That's what it's like for us, isn't it? God has given us a Redeemer, Jesus, and we do nothing. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your sovereign kindness you brought new life and hope in tragic circumstances for Ruth and Naomi. Father, help us to believe that you can do this too in our own lives, whether it's now or in the future. Give us hope, we pray, as we trust your kindness. And Father, we thank you here that we see why this story is in the Bible. We see how it all fits together and that you work through the little, even the little events of this world to bring about your great purposes. We thank you for our Redeemer Jesus who was responsible, stood up to the mark at great cost to himself that we might have new life in him. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.